Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, and from that city is that is the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hevites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave them the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then, Gad said to, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. This is the word of the Lord. Head out to story keepers or to nursery. Kids are heading out. Let's uh, join together in prayer. Ask God's help as we think about the passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've walked with us as we've uh, worked our way through 2 Samuel over these past months. We pray now that as we come to this final chapter that you would help us not only understand it, but see its application in our lives, how we view reality and truth in the world. 
Uh, we pray, Lord, that no matter uh, where uh, we stand in our journey of faith, whether we might feel distant from you or close to you, that this would be a significant time where, as you promise, and as we open up your word, you speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if someone was to ask you to name the movie with the worst ending, I wonder what movie you might choose. Here are some contenders as reviewed in that category online. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Someone said, great movie, but when the movie's climax is over with Sauron being defeated, the movie takes 45 minutes to end, and that is just a bore fest. Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. Someone said, the greatest sci-fi epic ever ends with teddy bears doing the chicken noodle dance. And then no, Man for old, uh, no Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers film from 2007. Someone said, this movie had it all, but the final five minutes were just awful. You had no idea what happens to Josh Brolin's wife, no idea what happens to the villain, and no idea what Tommy Lee Jones' statement means in the end. Bottom line, no closure. I tell you that because if First and Second Samuel were made into a movie, it's quite possible that some might feel it's a contender for a, the worst ending. And I say that because you have David's song in chapter 22, together with his last words at the start of 23, would have made a great ending to the story. Or, or the testimony to David's mighty men that we looked at last week in chapter 23 could have worked really well as well. But neither of those sections were followed by the screen caption that said, the end. That comes after today's chapter, which frankly might feel to us like something of an anticlimax. For one thing, it describes an administrative act. It's a census, a count, a recording of statistics. Instead of ending with the exploits of mighty men, we end with the exploits of civil servants with no uh, no aspersions being cast on any of you who might work in that field. But even, even more significantly than that, instead of ending on a note of triumph, this book ends with failure. And it's not as if the narrator has the excuse of being able to say, well, you know, it's how the cookie crumbles. That's the last thing in the chronology of the story. That's why it's the final chapter. As we've noted over the last few weeks, that the chronological account of David's life actually finished back in chapter 20. And what we have here in the last four chapters are these collection of fragments from earlier periods of David's reign. And what that means is that the narrator has specifically chosen to end the book this way by making this story the conclusion. And the natural question we want to ask is, why? Why would you end with this? Well, hopefully by the end of the sermon, we'll have some sort of answer to that question. Here's, a, here's today's sermon in a sentence, summarizing what I think we'll be seeing. It's this, that God sovereignly saves us not only from our sin, but also through our sin. And we'll look at the chapter in three parts. First of all, God's puzzling anger. Secondly, God's hand of mercy. Thirdly, God's altar of sacrifice. First, God's puzzling anger. Look at verse one again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now, we could probably spend the entire sermon just on this first verse, because there's a few things to address here. First of all, the first word, again. 
Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, which indicates that the narrator has in his mind a previous time when God's wrath was aroused against Israel. He doesn't tell us exactly when he's thinking about, but my guess is that this little sandwich structure that we've thought about over the last few weeks can help us here. Remember that these last four chapters are structured a bit like a sandwich where everything is centered on the central filling of the sandwich, the main part of it in the middle section, which as we saw was, was David's psalm and his last words, 22 and 23. And then the layer above and below that, whether that's your lettuce or your tomato, however you think of that in your sandwich, those were the accounts of David's mighty men that we looked at last week. And then today we come to sort of what holds it together, the bread on the top and the bread on the bottom. Chapter 24, we're looking at today is the bottom, but on the top is the first part of chapter 21, which actually parallels our passage today. And it's chapter 21, I think, that the narrator is referring to here and reminding us of with his first word in chapter 24, again. The again points us back to the earlier arousing of God's anger in chapter 21. Very briefly, chapter 21, there's a famine in the land for three years. We'll see that number three as part of the parallel between the two chapters. David therefore comes before God, and God explains that the famine is a judgment on a crime that David's predecessor, King Saul, had committed against this people called the Gibeonites. Back in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites had tricked Israel into providing them protection. The Israelites had therefore sworn that they would not kill the Gibeonites. However, in a in a, in a fit of nationalistic zeal, King Saul had massacred some Gibeonites. And God does not ignore the shedding of innocent blood, no, no matter who it belongs to, nor the breaking of a covenant made in his name. And so God explains to David that he was angry with his own people and was punishing them for this crime with a famine. And David therefore goes to the Gibeonites to ask them how Israel might make atonement for their crime. In other words, what needs to happen to make this right? And the Gibeonites explain that they, they, what has happened requires more than monetary compensation, required the shedding of blood, but they themselves didn't have the right to execute anyone. So David agrees to their request for seven male descendants of Saul to be executed, which results in the famine being lifted. Now, there's more to that chapter, but that at least explains the again at the beginning of chapter 24, as well, I would suggest, as giving this pertinent point to ponder in our current uh, context ourselves. This is a point made by the, the PCA pastor, Peter Lightheart, in his commentary in a footnote on Samuel some 20 years ago. He said, 2 Samuel 21 belies the convenient conservative idea that contemporary Americans bear no responsibility for our ancestors' treatment of blacks or American Indians. If that father did evil, the sons are responsible to make restitution and will labor under the curse of God until they do, end quote. That's a point worth pondering. But back to the first verse of 24, look at the verse again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. God is angry against Israel, and he incites David to take a census, which in verse 2 David does. 
A few years ago, when as a congregation we were reading through the Bible together, this verse became a topic of conversation, or I should say this verse and its parallel in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, where we read this, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Hmm. And then just to thicken the plot a little further, we look at David's reaction after he carries out the census, 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So 2 Samuel informs us that God incited David to take the census. 1 Chronicles tells us that Satan incited David to take the census. And then David takes full responsibility for his folly himself with the census. And I'll be the first to admit I think that's rather confusing, to say the least as well. Critics of the Bible line up at the door to argue that these two passages are hopelessly irreconcilable, one of the many passages they would point to to discredit the authority of the Bible. These critics are certainly justified in pointing the verse as significant and worthy of our study. However, I think they're most mistaken to assume that the biblical authors were so desperately confused they could not spot the difference between God and his greatest enemy, namely Satan. Rather, what we have here is a case study in in the challenging but not irrational subject of the sovereignty of God. Bible teaches that God sometimes allows us to fall prey to the temptations of Satan or our own evil desires. And God always intends those those situations to be a test where we might actually prove the genuineness of our faith in God. God never tempts us to sin. But from Satan's perspective, every trial is intended as a temptation. He wants to trip us up every time. But even when Satan is is seeking to tempt us to sin, in a wider sense, God still remains sovereign in those situations, still remains sovereign over the process, because at any point he can interrupt proceedings if he so desires. The respective writers of 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21, I think, are therefore They're not contradicting each other, but they're rather looking at the same situation from different vantage points. So the writer of Chronicles looks at the scene kind of at ground level and rightly sees that Satan is the one prodding David here. But then the narrator of Samuel looks at the same scene from a different angle and he acknowledges that God has a sovereign purpose here, even in Satan's act, that nothing here was outside of God's control that he always works all things, even the horrendous and the heinous and the horrible, according to his plan. Does that mean that God approves of evil acts? Absolutely not. The sinful acts we commit are never God's fault, but are an exercise of the legitimate moral freedom that God has given to us, which is why David is held accountable for what he does here and why he comes to realize his own sin and guilt. But even those sinful guilt, those sinful acts cannot and do not subvert God's plan. God takes our free decisions, even the most grievous and malicious, and he uses those decisions in achieving his perfect plan. We don't know exactly how he does that, but we do well to humbly acknowledge that he does so because his wisdom is way beyond ours. But there's another related question, verse 1, that I imagine some of us are asking, and that is, 
what's the big deal with taking a census? I mean, taking a census in the Bible was clearly not inherently wrong. God himself initiated a census in Numbers chapter 1. Indeed, the book of Numbers gets its name because it's a, a book of a census. However, here in chapter 24 in 2 Samuel, it's clearly there's something wrong with it. I mean, in verse 3, even Joab, remember Joab? Joab would not be the first person you would think of as an expert on ethics or having a sensitive conscience. Even Joab tells David that what he's doing is wrong. The challenge for us is, however, is that we're not told explicitly why the census was wrong. This wasn't a census as we might think of a census, gathering information on every resident in the nation. David's census was the enrolling of an army. While there had been universal conscription amongst the Israelite men for the taking of Canaan as the promised land, once Israel possessed the land, the only wars permitted were defensive wars, which had to be fought with a volunteer army, a defense-only army. And so since arriving in Canaan, Israel had never had a standing army before. But now David wants a standing army, hence the census. And so many commentators take that as a sign of a loss of faith in God on David's part. And if that's the case, David's own words in the Psalms indict him. Just consider these two examples, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, 16 to 17, no king is saved by the size of his army. I mean, David wrote this. No warrior escapes by his own great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength it cannot save. So the argument goes that it's because of David's loss of faith that God gets angry at the census, that God, David's confidence has switched from God to now the size of his army. He plays the numbers game, which is a game that all of us can be tempted to play at different times. You know, some of us, we might find our confidence in the numbers in our bank balance or our investment portfolio such that we're not as generous with our money as, as God calls us to be. Or in church, we can become more concerned with the numbers game in terms of attendance numbers rather than actual spiritual gospel growth that's happening in people's lives. Numbers game is always tempting to play. But having said all of that, there's actually nothing explicitly in the passage that indicates that was David's issue here. It may have been true for David, but we're not actually told. But what we are told in this passage, and what perhaps gives us one clue about the nature of David's sin, is how this passage, I wonder if you noticed it as Becky was reading it, this passage has echoes to the Exodus. Later in the passage, actually beyond what I asked Becky to read, verses 21 to 25, the same word for plague is used as was used for the plagues on Egypt during the Exodus. The plague is spread by who? It's by the angel of the Lord who strikes down the people, verse 17, just as he did in the Exodus. Just as at the Passover, only a sacrifice can avert the plague of death that's brought by the angel. So it's not an unreasonable suggestion that if David's punishment was similar to that of Pharaoh, then maybe so was David's crime. And Pharaoh's first crime was to use God's people as slaves. That instead of respecting them as belonging to God, Pharaoh took them as his own. 
David had already kind of started on that pattern in his life prior to this point, taking another man's wife as his own. And now he takes the people who belong to God and he treats them as his own possession, as if he owns them. David's acting like Pharaoh, like a pagan king of the nations, all of which might help us understand God's puzzling anger here. But then secondly, we see God's merciful hand. Joab and his army officers carry out the census. They work through the whole country counterclockwise. Takes over nine months, but eventually they get back to Jerusalem. They report to David that in Israel and, and Judah combined are an impressive 1.3 million fighting men. However, by this stage, David has come, become aware of his sin. Pick up in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. This middle section, we're going to see David prays twice, and here's his first prayer, and it's a prayer of repentance in verse 10. This incident did indeed happen after David's sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, and Nathan the prophet confronting the king about that, then perhaps, perhaps it shows some spiritual progress here on David's part, that his heart was tender enough now that he realizes and confesses his sin without the needed intervention of a prophet, that David knows what he's done is wrong, he admits it, and he asks God for forgiveness. That's actually a good sign of spiritual maturity in any of our lives, that we're able ourselves to see when we've sinned and we bring it to God and we seek his forgiveness. And if you can just look back over this past week and say, yeah, that happened in, in my life this week where I saw my sin and I confessed it. It's a good sign. But it's only after David confesses his sin that God then does summon a prophet, this time a prophet called Gad, to come see David. And God tells Gad to present David with three options in terms of the consequence of his sin. It's going to be either three years of famine or three months of enemy attack or three days of plague. You can imagine David saying, is there a fourth option? Three hours of something? Three minutes? But no, those were the three. David said, choose your poison. David's response comes in verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. David essentially gives, gives the choice back to God, doesn't he? That's quite a response. You know, it's, it's really only someone who knows and trusts God implicitly would answer that way. And David answers that way because he's confident that the God who is great in mercy will exercise his judgment with mercy. It's been said that there is one thing worse than falling into the hands of an enemy, and that is to fall into the hands of the living God. And there's some truth to that, because you can't escape God, you can't defeat God. But David also knew that it's also true that God's judgment is always measured and merciful. On a grand scheme, on an eternal, everlasting scheme. His judgment is eternal and terrible. That's why 
we take sin seriously here. That's why we take God's word seriously here. That's why we don't hesitate to tell people here that there is no more important decision in your life than to trust Jesus as your savior against sin and death and judgment. But while God's judgment is terrible, God is not a torturer. He's not a malignant force venting unrestrained anger. His judgment is always measured and appropriate. And here we see God gives David the third option, the three days of plague, which meant that as we read in verse 15, 70,000 people die as the plague spreads throughout the country from Dan to Beersheba. I mentioned a few moments ago that David prays twice in this middle section. First time was verse 10, was a prayer of repentance. His second prayer comes in verse 17, and it's a prayer of intercession. We pick it up in verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aaronah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Del Ralph Davis helpfully points out that verse 17 actually should be read there as a flashback, reporting David's prayer of intercession that came prior to God's restraining order. So in the chronology, you could swap verses 16 and 17. I think he's right. So if you can imagine the scene, you know, the plague is spreading its shadow like a dark cloud across the land, and it's approaching Jerusalem. And David sees it's approaching Jerusalem, and he intercedes on behalf of the people. And God, in his mercy, hears David's prayer, and the plague dramatically stops. God relents and withdraws the angel before it gets to Jerusalem. So we see that David was indeed wise to ask that they might fall into the hand of the Lord, because God's mercy is great, as was proved right here. God shows his hand of mercy. But you see, the story doesn't finish there. It can't, because if God is just, and the Bible says he's just, then there still has to be full judgment in the way. God's relenting can't just mean that, you know, he sweeps David's sin under the carpet and says, okay, well, we'll call it bygones and call it quits here. David, God decrees that his judgment, if, if God decrees that his judgment is going to be tempered with mercy, there has to be atonement. The wrong has to be put right in another way if his judgment is not poured out in its fullness. And that brings us to the third and final scene in this chapter, which is God's altar of salvation. Prophet Gad comes back to David as directed by God with a command. Verse 18, God came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord in the threshing floor of Aaron, the Jebusite. So David went up at God, Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aaron looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aaron went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aaron said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And as you read on, you discover David buys the land, insisting that he pay full price despite Arana's offer of a significant discount. And having purchased the land, we read in the very last verse of the chapter, which is the last 
verse of the book that's the last verse of First and Second Samuel, because they're really one book, that David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. The plague ultimately stopped because of a sacrifice. 70,000 people had died, but many more deserved to die, but instead an animal had died in their place. The end. Now, that might seem to you as rather an anticlimactic ending after everything else we've seen in First and Second Samuel, and a contender for worst ending if it was made into a movie. But here, here is why this is actually a magnificent ending. And it all has to do, believe it or not, with the location of David's altar at this threshing floor of Aranah. The narrator here doesn't tell us, but the narrator in Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, tells us this. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The threshing floor of Aronah or Ornan, the Jebusite as he's referred to here, was the very spot where a thousand years earlier, at a place called Mount Moriah, God had told Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac. You probably remember the story. But just as Abraham raised his hand with a knife, God had intervened there and had provided a ram as a substitute. And that ram had died in the place of Isaac. And now at the very same spot, here in 2 Samuel 24, God's hand was raised against his people, but again he withdraws it. And again, there is a substitute as a sacrifice made in the place of the people. You see the parallel. But that's not all. Because Second Chronicles 3.1 also tells us that the threshing floor of Aronah was also the place where Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, which would become the central place where sacrifices would be made for the sins of the people. The problem, of course, if you remember from our last series in the book of Hebrews, was that the sacrifice of animals could never truly pay for human sin. Those sacrifices were only ever intended as a pointer to what was needed to come later. And what was ultimately needed is actually foretold by David here without him realizing it in his intercessory prayer in verse 17. Let me read you that prayer again, but as the New International Version better translates it. David, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So David sees the angel striking down the people, and he's distraught. He can't bear what he's seeing, so he offers himself. He says, these people are my sheep. It's me who's the shepherd. May the judgment fall on me and my family. And as we just saw, God does relent. But the judgment doesn't fall on David and his family. Or at least it doesn't quite yet. But a thousand years later, Jesus arrives, and in light of 2 Samuel 24, he makes this astounding claim in John chapter 10, verse 11. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus arrives on the stage of history and says, in effect, I'm the son of David. I'm the key family member here. Let your hand fall on me. 
Because you see, Jesus saw the judgment of God hanging over the people of God, hanging over you, hanging over me, and he's heartbroken. He can't bear to see it, so he offers himself as the substitute sacrifice. And so once again, the Father's hand is raised in judgment, but this time it would not be withdrawn because on Mount Moriah this time, at the threshing floor of Arana this time, near the temple of Solomon this time, there was no substitute for the sacrifice. This was the sacrifice. So that as Jesus hung on the cross as the final sacrifice, he takes our punishment. He dies in our place. The judgment of God finally does fall in all its fullness And it's the judgment on us, but it falls on Jesus. So Genesis 22, we read that Isaac was spared after a journey of three days. 2 Samuel 24, Jerusalem was spared after a plague of three days. And with Jesus, after three days, death couldn't hold him down and he rises from the dead. God's judgment on us falls on Jesus, but three days later, he's alive again and the judgment is gone. Your judgment's gone if indeed you will put yourself in his merciful hands. Remember how I said earlier that God works everything, even the horrible things, according to his plan, that God takes our decisions, our free decisions, even our sins, and he uses those decisions as part of his perfect plan? Well, he does it here again. Because here, David purchases what will be the foundation of the temple, the temple pointing forward to Jesus, the true sacrifice, the true temple. But this this acquiring of the foundation comes not as a result of any of David's achievements as, as king, his mighty warrior acts. This foundation comes as a consequence, really, of his forgiven sin, which is why he builds an altar. So it comes not from what David ever did for God. It comes from what God did for David, listening to his prayers and having mercy on on the people. God sovereignly saves us not only from our sin, but even miraculously, mysteriously through our sin. Or to put it another way, Edmund Clowney, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary here in Philadelphia, told this story that while professor there, they would hold classes for inner city pastors. And one of the men in the class would sometimes ring Clowney up, often on a Saturday evening as he's writing a sermon, ask his opinion on a certain passage he was preaching on. One Saturday night, he called Clowney and he asked, what's the Bible all about? Do you give me in one verse, one verse that puts it all together? And Clowney said, that's easy. The verse that puts it all together comes at the end of Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. That's the Bible in five words, he said. But when Clowney would quote the verse, he'd always repeat it. Salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. And the reason he would do that is because if you don't get that, then you don't get the Bible. And if you don't get that, you don't get Christianity. And if you don't get that, you don't get what 2 Samuel's about either. 2 Samuel actually has the most marvelous, glorious ending because it's this glorious reminder that the book's actually not about David. It's about the Lord, and that salvation is of the Lord. It's of our sovereign, saving Lord.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that you work even through the circumstances of our sin to save us from our sin, that you work through all the circumstances of life and the providences of life to achieve your purposes. For all these foreshadowings in the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus, our good shepherd, who would lay down his life for the sheep, we thank you that salvation is from you. Salvation is of the Lord. May we trust completely in you with our lives, with our eternities, with everything, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.